Three, two, one. The last time I sat down with my friend Bobby Hundreds in New York City, I was interviewing him on stage for his memoir book tour. The conversation around his book, This Is Not a T-Shirt, was so connected with him and with the entire audience. And I remember vividly thinking, oh my gosh, this would have made a great podcast episode. And one pandemic later, we are finally here. Bobby Kim, also known as Bobby Hundreds, is a best-selling author, photographer, artist, and the creative force that drives The Hundreds, a world-renowned streetwear brand. His work has been seen and worn by millions, and he is known for his ability to shift culture. From his upbringing as one of the only Asian American kids in a mostly white and Latino community, to his Southern California punk adolescence, to the brand's explosive success. Bobby has become the bridge between generations in streetwear and design, and collaboration has always been his thing. Bobby's latest book recently dropped, and it's titled NFTs Are a Scam. The hundreds have been involved in Web3 early on, and I'm really interested in what he has to say. This conversation is also featured in our latest at-your-service short film, Nor Days, also spelled out as nor d apostrophe ays so nor ays and it documents how we build at your service so you can check out that short film on youtube or ays.media this is a really big reunion for bobby and i and it feels like we pick up right where we left off so enjoy the storytelling session on building brands around community reclaiming power with web3 and staying relevant this is many years coming, by the way. Many. Yeah, many yeah. years coming. I feel like now I have closure on uh, that segment of the pandemic. Which part? Like this is the like this is all I, I've been waiting for this moment. Yeah. To close on. So the pandemic is done now to you. Yeah. Because yeah, now we have reunited. Yeah, that's okay. all I was trying to Thank get you. back to. Truly. Was at some point we're going to have to reconnect. Yeah. And that's when I'll call it on whatever mm. that phase of COVID-19 was. Well, it's funny because we were going to L.A. like every month. I, I remember at one point thinking, wow, I see you guys more than I see my own friends in New York. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's how it we definitely felt. Making such an effort. Yeah. And this is the first time we're seeing you. <sighs> also... Just hello. I'm so Hi. happy to see you. Yeah, I'm happy to see you too. Bobby, we kick off these conversations with a simple question. How is your heart doing today? How's my heart doing? Oh boy. Today? Right now? Yeah, or, in you, this moment? or however however you received that question. Mm-hmm. I think uh if I I think my immediate response to that off the top. My heart feels, and I don't know if your heart can feel as busy as your head does, but mm. uh, the heart definitely doesn't feel as settled as I would want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is weight there. Um, I think as many, if not most of the people around me, there's there are a lot of stressors and anxieties and concerns, whether you know, you're a parent and you're thinking about your children where you're thinking about today it's relatively warm in New York and you're thinking of climate. Uh, woke up this morning, read some news about the economy because that's going to mm -hmm. happen. And if you're younger, uh, it's a fraught world and things are unpredictable and a little unstable these days, very volatile. So, um, so how does all that impact your insides? I think it... Uh, I definitely feel a lot of that as um, someone who probably is a bit of an empath, you know? Uh, and so, and I've always been relatively, I've been sensitive to, especially our community, um, but anyone around me and what they're going through, I'm, I'm, I kind of tend to absorb a lot of that. Yeah. And so I think maybe that's what it is. I've, I've had a lot of, um, I've had a lot of difficult conversations over the last week and, um, friends who are going through breakups, divorces, uh, questioning partnerships, um, and having troubles in personal and professional life. And uh, I don't know, that sits with me too. So I think 
at, at, at the bottom part of my heart, like the the weight of it feels somewhere around there. Yeah, you know, and and I would I would love to say that I'm feeling light and optimistic and <clears throat> and hopeful and um, I think maybe as the day progresses, uh, especially if I'm around young people and uh, someone who's really inspired by their journey that tends to rub off on me a bit. And so maybe like that can turn around, but right now that's probably to be transparent where, where my heart's at. Thank you. I mean, I, I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability. You know, this morning I revisited the conversation that you had with Nipsey Hussle in 2018 about community and it felt like every single word that was shared between you two felt more relevant today, mm. especially post-pandemic, um, than maybe I the, mm. the first time I heard it years ago when it came out. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, when people talk to you or refer to like your work with the hundreds and and just your impact in culture, it's there's a lot of like uh, language around trend mm. and things that are very transient, things that are moving constantly. Yeah. But there's also a very um, still component, which is the consistency in community building. Right. And I was really carrying to heart something that Nipsey had said to you, which was that like, you know, expansion or success doesn't always have to be expansion and wanting to like grab all like new clientele or new audience members and stuff. And this is something that like Adam and I hold very dearly with at your service. It's like, how do we serve our core audience Mm -hmm. who like shows up every time and then trust that the work will speak for itself, that it'll spread on its own. And I've, I've literally with my own eyes witnessed you engage with your community in that way and talk to them from this like deep heart centered place Mm. And somehow you're able to maintain that and be a part of like, I don't want to say the trend, Mm -hmm. but like the trend in culture and like have kind of a finger on the pulse of things. And it's funny because you you often talk about like young people Mm -hmm. because you carry this essence of like wanting to have an impact on people where they're at in their lives when their minds and hearts are still like figuring things out. And I can feel that concern still coming from you today. So how do you balance all of that? How do you feel about all of this Mm. now? Yeah. Well, you touched on so many things there. I'm going to try to address them all. You don't have to address them all. You can just respond however your heart speaks to you. No, no, but I want to address them all. Great. Go for it. Um, and I, you know, I haven't listened to that conversation with Nipsey since then, probably just because it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it haunts me a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, and so I, I, now that you're saying that, and I'm recalling some elements of what we were conversing about, uh, I totally agree. I think we're more desperate and starved for community or connection than we ever have been. And I don't think it's just due to the pandemic and lockdowns. Right. I think it has, you know, to, we can blame the internet and the way that social algorithms are structured. We can blame uh, the politicized environment, you know, a lot of social issues bubbling to the surface, um, economic disparity, social disparity, and class disparity. You know, there's many things that we can attribute to. I'm not here to diagnose what the problem is, but I am here to talk about what we can do moving forward. Right, like what we need to do in order to rectify and bridge some of these severed relationships, and um, I think that you know, to your next point, we spent so many years collecting people, Mm. right, Mm -hmm. and that was probably one of the most sobering revelations uh, in the first part of the pandemic for me was that for the first time in my career, I was forced to stay home, I wasn't traveling. Like you and I, we both travel so much. Yeah. And um, wasn't living out of a suitcase. I have two young children at home, married, and um, sitting across from them every night and, and sharing a dinner, you know, and like sharing breakfasts and lunches and like hanging out with them on Saturday afternoons, mm-hmm. like consistently. 
And what I learned from all of that was that, uh, you know, instead of going out into the world every day and trying to collect and assort different kinds of people, almost like as if they're like trading cards or like Pokemon. <laughs> they're like, or they're <laughs> NFTs or they're like Pokemon. I have, I have an entire universe. I have an ocean of people in front of me that I have yet to explore, mm. right? And so that mm. was very humbling. And once I realized I could probably sit here for a thousand years with my, at, the, at that time he was probably, my older son was probably 10. So I could probably sit here for a thousand years with my 10 year old and still not learn and explore like all of the complexities of who he is as a person. And meanwhile, I'm going out and trying to find 10,000 friends or trying to um, uh, accrue 10,000 more followers when one person was always enough. Right. And it was a, it was a really, really meaningful lesson for me mm -hmm. that um, it was this, this, speaking of meaningful, I had been on this meaningless pursuit mm. for so long, especially because of social and because of the way the internet was set up of trying to evangelize and trying to recruit as many people into my world as possible, right? And meanwhile, I have five people in my community, 15, 500, whatever it is, it's enough, yeah. right? And hmm. yesterday we threw an event here in New York and we just did like a quick little ice cream social thing. And we asked everyone to come out, you know, our brand has been around for 20 years. So that's multiple generations now of people whose lives we've touched and different types of relationships we've built with what started out as c customers and consumers. And then some of these people became staff, some of them became family, um, but they're all community in different ways. And it was just amazing to see there were people that were showing up who just found out about the hundreds or just read my book at some point this year, mm -hmm. you know, and we're like, oh, it's you. You know, I just listened to a podcast by you. And, you know, this was my first time getting to meet you. And then there were people that were showing up that were like, hey, do you remember me from this other ice cream social we threw eight years ago? And I'm like, I do remember you. Yeah. Like, pull up the photo. I remember this moment. We had this conversation. Um, you know, people, kids that we sold to, like clothes, you know, T-shirts and streetwear when they were growing up who were showing up with their children. There was a guy who showed up and he was like, this is my son and I named him after Adam Baum, you know, which is our <laughs> mascot at the hundreds, you know? And so I'm like, this is probably all I ever needed was yep. this guy, you know, yep. or this woman and this individual. And uh, instead I got lost in the sauce of trying to, mm. I need like 5 million followers. And yeah. so I think if we just begin there, this is a very short story long, um, you know, way of me just saying, if we can just begin there yeah, and remember that one person, two people, five people is enough for a community, mm. then it becomes very clear. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny because that, concept itself feels so radical because it's like going against what we're constantly being trained to do, which yeah. is like want more and want bigger numbers. And I, I often think about why we put in-person or virtual events on and what comes and what comes to mind is often like to translate those numbers into actual humans to remember that there are actual people behind those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And we had like, we hosted a virtual event a couple of nights ago. And this woman that I see, this was like our third one doing third time doing it. And, um, this woman who I saw every year there, like she had a question. So I like called on her and I was like, it's so great to see you here again. And she was from Spain and she was so taken aback that I had remembered. And yeah. I was like, you got like, it's, when when you engage with somebody in conversation face to face and you have like a meaningful connection, I mean, I'm not going to say everyone's going to remember every single person, of course, because everyone people have things that are happening in their minds. But to me, at least, I, and I can hear this in what you're saying too, like when people come out to support your work and like are essentially a part of the team because they're wearing you with them, it there's a it's a reminder of like why you why you chose to be in like the service industry to begin with. Cause I really do consider what we do a service and it's focused on uh, community building. And so like 
and ice cream social is such a great way to do it. But yeah. <laughs> when I have conversations with people about this, it seems like we're all on the same page or the sentiment is similar amongst creatives and people who are trying to build community. But when we talk about it, it's almost still from this like perspective of like, but the tech around us doesn't tech doesn't always mm -hmm. support that or the trends around us doesn't always support that or the culture doesn't support that. But I'm like, but that's, but what we're seeing is like this hunger and actually people finding ways to be a part of community. So is it just like how we're framing this conversation and actually a lot more community connection is happening or is it that, that this is just a minority? What's just a minority? Like that being able to build community in real life and remember who we're trying to be of service. Like people, mm -hmm. I don't want to say people like us, but like in the work that we're engaging on the ground and like translating those numbers into human beings and realizing that this core audience, like these are who we've been trying to serve the whole time. Hey, I'm Nora Tagori. For my new podcast, Rep, I've been examining a very personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society as a whole. I thought I knew the story, but the more I looked for answers, the more questions I had. What is your America story? I always felt like America stole me from myself and it replaced it with a myth. Welcome to Rep. Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. I think if we start from a place of being mindful of using community um, in the human sense versus attempting to frame it as a marketing ploy, which is what right. has transpired over the last yes. several years. Yeah. It's probably the the buzziest marketing word I've heard, in the, especially over the pandemic, yeah, uh, is a sense of community. And that served me in a business sense because I had just written a book about building a brand around community. So then everyone was starting to come to me yeah. to say, oh, you know, tell us how you do it. Like, how do we build brands around community? And I'm like, well, this is where it's going to get thorny and a bit difficult to figure out if we start approaching it from the sense of how do we build business and profit off of that. Um, that's a totally different thing <clears throat> and, and it's fine. Customer acquisition, you know, it's just marketing, uh, advertising. Like yeah. These uh, elements have always existed as part of brand building. So um, that's important too, but let's not conflate the two. Community and, and circling back to my point earlier, it can be as few as one person Right. And really what we're talking about is bridging human and meaningful connections with people where you aren't treating them as customers or even as fans, but someone who is in the boat with you and working with you. Mm. Right. And so I've never, you know, for those who aren't familiar with the way that we established our brand, you know, I grew up in the hardcore scene. And if you visit any of these, attend any of these concerts and these little punk shows, uh, it's really hard to discern sometimes who's the singer and who's a fan, right? The uh, Often the vocalist will jump into the mosh pit and then the microphone will get ripped out of his hands and someone else will be singing. And then you realize that everybody in the room, for that moment at least, or for that evening, is a part of the band, right? And definitely a part of the memory that is made that night. Yeah, It's not just up to the five people that are standing on a higher stage. Mm -hmm. And it's not a hierarchy between we have a voice and you will listen to what we have to say. And here you are down here and you have to abide by what we're doing. We're all going to be involved in where this conversation is going to go. Yeah. And so um, that's my philosophy still. You know, 20 years ago, that's how we wanted to build the brand. And 20 years later, I still think that's the right way to approach how to build a, a company. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so something that I feel like you were on the forefront of talking about from when at least it hit my timeline is NFTs. And the reason I'm, I was going to say, I'm not trying to talk about NFTs themselves, but as somebody who has is you know, evolving their brand and is 
keeping a listening ear to how you can better be of service to your community, where does Web3 and NFTs come into place and how does that potentially play a role in your personal relationship with relevance? Yeah, um, I definitely didn't get involved in Web3, uh, what we, what's probably the more marketing friendly word of saying NFTs these days. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, to be, there was a, even a moment where NFTs became digital collectibles uh, because there's so much stigma around NFTs. Immediately, people started thinking of $5 million monkey pictures and like people cheating each right. other in, in pyramid schemes. So then everyone's just like, we can't use that word anymore. We're going to use digital collectibles. So let's just talk about Web3. Um, but I'm, I'm, I can unabashedly talk about NFTs cause I don't, I don't really care. Um, but well, we you're also writing a, a book on them. Yeah, I did. And it's dropping on May 16th. Oh, it's already, um, it's coming out in a month. So this is perfect timing yeah, great. to talk See? about it. Pre-order the book. Yes. Um, but yeah, the book actually, uh, covers my journey into this space, uh, in the last two to three years. And we didn't enter it because we thought it was, Again, a marketing decision. It wasn't a ploy for us to, uh, you know, try to find re relevance and culture, or any of that. Because to be fair, it wasn't cool back then, and it's definitely not any cooler now to be into that world. Um, what inspired us and what stoked us was, well, first of all, here's this dynamic technology. It's like just an innovative new path, right? That we can explore. I've always been really tantalized by anything that moves in tech. To me, uh, you know, there's always been this narrative that tech is, exists on one side and art and culture and anything cool is on the other, right? There's like this this canyon between Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach, you know, like SF and LA are worlds apart, supposedly. But of course, that's not true, right? Like fashion actually came from technology. Like tailoring was the first real sense of technology. And mm -hmm. even uh, in that, you got to identity and self-expression and, and personal art, right? And that was all managed through the technology of tailoring. And then when we were starting in the early 2000s, I used blog technology to not only connect with my audience, but also to be heard, right? And mm -hmm. so technology has actually facilitated a lot of my dreams and visions, and especially my art over the over my career. And so here was maybe perhaps a next wave of what that could be. At first, I was really confused by it, and then I really hated it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with some parts of it, I'm still really turned off by. Um, but I think what really, really appealed to me was the sense of for the first time, our community can actually not just have a sense of ownership, but a real ownership in how this brand performs, right? And that was such, um, it's, it seems crazy to think that it was a revolutionary thought at the time. Be, and to me, it's already like a, an of course, it's an obvious, we need this. Uh, I think over the next 10 to 20 years, we're all going to look back and be like, can you believe there was a time where brands and businesses were structured, that there was such uh, inequality and a, a disparity and an imbalance between mm. the owners and between the consumers, mm, mm -hmm. you know? And as I was writing the white paper for the projects that we were starting to build at the time, I was looking down at my sneakers and I, I was wearing probably some Nikes at the time, you know, and... I'm, I have these swooshes on the sides of my feet and every day I'm walking around Los Angeles or New York and giving free advertising to this massive corporation that's become the biggest sportswear giant in the world. Yeah. I don't get paid by Nike. You know, I'm not sponsored or endorsed. Um, but here I am giving them advertising because for in exchange, I get social clout, right? I have, uh, it's a social badge and it, it somehow gives me cachet in yeah. my immediate circles. Um, but I'm not necessarily making any more money by giving this brand free advertising every yeah. day. And once you realize that tech has been doing the same thing for the last 10 to 15 years of our lives, you look around and everybody's working for a big tech company. They These guys at the top, are bazillionaires while the rest of us have relatively stayed the same or have lost 
over you know the last decade of our lives. And then you consider why. You know, how did these companies get so big, these apps and these social networks? Well, they're all existing and building off of content that we're providing for free. You know, I saw something crazy yesterday. I went into someone's Instagram feed, and I don't know when this happened. Yeah. If you go into their grid and you're scrolling through their grid, they're throwing advertisements yeah, in no, there I know. too. I noticed that. That's wild. That's wild. It's really frustrating. that is my personal page, yeah. and you're selling advertising against it, and again, you're I'm not, not making, benefiting yeah. from it financially. And I think we need to address the fact that whenever I talk about the financial upside of all this, of tech, and you deserve this much, and you deserve a little bit of ownership and need to make some money, you know, there is this immediate reaction from a lot of the arts community of like, oh, why does it always need to be about money? And I'm like, that's also a narrative that these people in power have brainwashed a lot of young creators with, with oh, you should do it for love. You know, we don't want to see you get rich. Like, you should be starving. You should be a starving artist, right? It's always starving artists. It's always, uh, you know, working artists. It's always, like, poor artists. Like, that's the narrative. Yeah. And you never hear of, like, starving art gallery or, like, poor clothing company or, you know, it's like, no, these people are the ones that are benefiting and you need to stay hungry and that's how you're pure, as an, a creative person. And that's not fair because a lot of people don't have the means to live and are having to manage multiple jobs just in order to survive to create work. But they believe, oh, my art doesn't cost anything or no one wants to pay me for my art. And obviously it's not true because your art has always been making someone money. It wasn't you. Every JPEG you're posting online somewhere, a caption, a witty caption you're writing on your Instagram or putting on your Twitter or something you're posting on TikTok, someone was making money. It wasn't you. It was big tech. And that's why they've become trillionaires and zillionaires yeah. while you're like, wait, I still can't afford to buy a house in my city. Right. And so Web3 nailed that right on the head. And when I looked at it again from a brand perspective, that for 20 years I've been building a brand around this idea of community and telling all of my fans and audience and my consumers, oh, yeah, you all have a sense of ownership. Oh, yeah. Like to them, it was almost like it becomes very tribal. It's like a sports team. Hey, we're rooting for you. We're all on the hundred side as they do better, we do better. But that was also a lie. Right. And like I'm here living with the guilt as the founder of this company saying like, oh, I'm getting to eat well. I'm getting to travel well. Like my career is flourishing. You know, I'm getting more access. I'm making more money in different avenues. And then I'm seeing my customers going just like consuming and consuming and consuming. And so here was the first time that I was like, oh, we can actually mm. reframe this relationship between purveyor and consumer. And again, I think we're actually getting to a place where this idea is going to become much more normalized. I don't think we're going to get to a point where the idea of $5 million monkey JPEGs are going to be normalized, right? Like that was never my thought going into NFTs. Like that part of what Web3 is, uh, is really sensational and probably appeals and considers about 500 to 5,000 people in the world. But the elements of Web3 and NFTs that I think are universal and that can actually change the world are this idea of redistribution of wealth, redistribution of power, reframing the, the relationships between mm. purveyors and consumers, business owners and business supporters, right? We should all somehow be involved in the same conversation. And I'm seeing parts of it pop up here and there, whether it's called Web3 or not. You know, um, there's a movie out right now called Air, and it's, yeah, uh, it. I think it's the most artist royalties movie ever. You know, that's actually the premise of it, of Viola Davis, who's playing Michael Jordan's mother, saying, cool, we'll do this contract. Right. I'm not, I don't think I'm spoiling anything because this is actually the premise of the entire movie. Yeah. But she's just like, Michael's going to be involved in the upside of this forever. Yeah. You know, and that was, to me, I was like, that's Web3. You know, we just didn't call it that back yeah. then. And that tra that changed what endorsements look like, yeah. right? For and it athletes. sounded extremely radical at the time. It sounded extremely radical at the time, and it sounded extremely radical now. You know, we've gone this far, and to and people are still like, oh yeah, we should be involved in that. 
Yeah. Right. And again, it's these corporations and clothing brands like mine all take ownership in that. that are telling everyone like, no, no, we're the brand. We make the money and you consume. And that just doesn't seem fair. Again, Michael Jordan was the influencer. He does have a right to share in the upside because he is partially the reason why the shoes sell so well. Yeah. And just because you're not Michael Jordan with three billion fans around the world doesn't mean you're not also an influencer. Right. You can just have three fans. You can have three family members. You don't even need to have social media. Yeah. You go to your barbershop, you know, you tell talk them to about th- what you're wearing. Yeah. Talk, and they see what you're wearing and you're an interesting totally. person. They're going to be like, oh, I want that. Yeah. Right. Like just the colors you're wearing in front of me, like that's inspiring me in how I design. And when I go out, if I see something like that today yeah. in a store, I might buy it. So like you now just inspired me. Right. Right. So we all actually deserve I'm not saying we deserve 50% of a product, but like 0.001%, you know, yeah. because we did have some say mm-hmm. and some partis- some involvement in the success of whatever that product was. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, We just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. What an amazing way to reframe it. I really, I'm really looking forward to the book and I'm, I, it's like we needed to hear that from you specifically because I also think that part of, part of that equation though is like, okay, if we start from the source, is people feeling worthy enough mm. to think that they matter enough mm. to be a part of the bigger picture. And because of the society that we live in being a very capitalistic one, specifically, um, part of the medicine of, or I shouldn't say medicine, but part of the uh, poison of consuming, oh my gosh, that's a circus Survive song. The only difference between medicine and poison is in the dose. Um, <laughs> I just got it. Part of the poison of consuming is that we tell people to consume because they need it, because they're not enough. And I think that this reframe is like, we want you to be a part of it because not only are you more than enough, but you're also integral to our process. And we want, and we want you to know that we want to honor you in that. And we want you to know that like, we value you. Mm-hmm. Like we can sit there and be like, yeah, we value you as a customer. We value you as a client. But at the end of the day, what that typically meant was because, yeah, because you pay us. Mm-hmm. But now we're like, because you make us mm-hmm. because, and we are honored to be of service to you. And so when people are struggling with that concept of self-worth and value, but also, and and don't entirely see a place for them in this next era what are some questions that you feel like those people should ask themselves or contemplate on so that they can find their way? You're absolutely right. I think they everyone does need to realize that the companies and the brands and the corporations could not exist without them, right? And if and if we, I think we need to begin there. I used to. Um, speak there's there's a a chain store that we don't uh, sell to anymore with the hundreds um but they used to invite us to this huge conference every year and all the founders from all the skate and streetwear brands would stand up on stage in front of thousands of kids who actually sold the product in all those stores it was like a once a year conference and um i would watch all the and everyone would get to go up and give a little speech right and so you had like the founder of xyz surf company or the xyz skate brand cool streetwear guy going up on stage and be like, yo, what's up? Like, and all the fans are cheering them on, you know? And they're like, all the, you can see all the customers like, oh my God, that's who we get to sell product for every day. And then like that guy's so famous and he's so rich and he's so important. And uh, it just really weirded me out. Again, having come from the punk scene where I'm like, this is so backwards. Yeah. Like 
these people should be on stage, right? And so that's what I said when I went out on stage. I was like, actually, I should be in the audience and you should be on the stage because I couldn't be here without you. I'm just a guy who drew, who drew pictures and makes clothes. I could have just been doing this for an audience of one in a garage, you know, as a hobby. Yeah. But because of you and your belief, this company actually turned into something. Yeah. And so I just, I, you know, if any, if you take anything out of what this podcast is today, I want you to leave with when you're, whenever you're looking at, especially the higher corporations, and it's not just in fashion, it's in tech, and it's in food, it's in hospitality. Just remember that you're always the one that's in the position of power, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And when I give advice on young brands doing collaborations and they're figuring out their contracts and agreements, I'm like, they need you more than you need them always. Like you can always walk away, you're gonna be fine, but they have a lot more to lose and their success is predicated on you continuing to exist and support them. I hear what you're saying and I think to most people, it's just like boiling it down to financials, but they don't need us. I need them because I need that contract or I need that gig because I'm an independent freelance person and they have a lot of money and so, Yeah, like, and that's and, fair. And they also, I and this is like even speaking from experience too, especially when like you're either being tokenized or you know you're just kind of going through a roster. And this is why like I left the agency that I was at. It was, it, I don't like this feeling of being like, well, we can just get somebody else from our like catalog. And there's like no relationship building. And so now our approach is always through relationship building. And in that way, it's like I guess they need they need you maybe because of like the intention and the uniqueness that you may bring as a person as mm-hmm. well. Like, can you unpack that a little bit more? Because it's yeah. like, I I hear what you're saying and I know it's true, but sometimes it doesn't feel true. That you're enough. Well, that's an interesting. <laughs> that, that they need us more than we need them. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally fair what you were saying that, especially if you're just trying to survive, um, it's a little bit easier for me to say this at my stage in my career of yeah. like, screw them, you don't need them, and just like follow your dreams. And that's not exactly what it is that I'm trying to say. Uh, there's always a balance and a dance, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, especially in streetwear, I get asked a lot about high fashion and luxury stealing and pirating yeah. off of what we've built. Right. And I'm like, you have to remember that we also do need them in a way because they are on the main stage. So when you go to Coachella, uh, Coachella's this weekend in Los Angeles, uh, there is the main stage mm-hmm. and those are the acts on the bill. When you see the fire, uh, the headliners are in like size, like 25 font. <laughs> And then there's um, smaller acts, more independent, uh, emerging artists that are lower mm-hmm. on the bill in smaller font. And uh, I don't look at them as one is more important than the other mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. of any type of value. Got it. I look at them as they all need to be uh, there together yeah. in the ecosystem for it to remain healthy and balanced, mm-hmm. right? And so people come for the headliners, but then they learn about the emerging artists Mm-hmm. Right. The mm-hmm. emerging artists also keep the headliners grounded and more personable where it doesn't feel like Coachella has become this corporate sold out event. Uh, and then for the younger emerging artists on the bill, the smaller names, right, they like the big brands being on there because that gives them a sense of validation and people are like, wow, you're performing on the same day that Frank Ocean is. Maybe you're the next Frank Ocean. And so it is a little bit of a relationship and there is a little bit of a dance where you do have to remember that you do need some of these bigger companies in order to be the platform for you not only to aspire to get up there, but also to want to take it down and be the next version of that, right. you know, and, and they give you exposure. So um, it feels more like an ecosystem rather yes. than a pyramid. Almost. Yeah, it is an ecosystem. Yeah. I think it's all, you know, there have been points in my career and it actually toggles back and forth where I'm the small name on the bill. Mm-hmm. And then there are seasons where I'm the big name. Mm. And to me, it doesn't make a difference. 
Yeah. Right. I'm just like, this is where I'm at right now. And when you're the small artist on the bill and you're living, you're touring out of the van, there's something very uncomfortable, but also very like magical and charming yeah. about that. Yeah. Right. And you're making, creating an incredible, profound work. And yeah. when you're the big name at the top, all the radio show concerts that you have to do and the, the talk shows you got to go on, you got to perform the same song over and over and over again. It's very uncreative. Yeah. Right. And so it's just a matter of considering the perspective and remembering how relative everything is. Yeah. That it's all happening for certain reasons. You know, even in the book that I wrote in 2019, my memoir, um, and this is more a matter of timing, mm -hmm. but there are anecdotes in there that took 20 years to write. And then there are anecdotes that I talk about that happened within like 20 minutes. And they have equal weight in the book. Each of them have like four or five pages mm. each dedicated mm -hmm. to them. And so in the story of my life, it's not like one was more momentous than the other. You know, just because one took 20 minutes and one took 20 years right. doesn't mean that one was more valuable than the other. I needed both of them to happen in order to tell this broader story. Yeah. And so I think it's the same. You know, we've when we were starting out in with the hundreds, we I were really intentional about going out. We'd go to the trade shows yeah. and turn down orders over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, there's an anecdote in my book where we covered our wraps I know, I love this story. with tarps because we were like, we don't need you. I had the luxury to say that at the time, right? I was making money like writing and doing other stuff on the side. And so when a big, massive department store like Macy's was coming and saying, hey, we're gonna give you $100,000 right now if you open this up and let's, let us look at your t-shirts. We were like, no, we don't need you, you need us. And the more I stay, save you off, the more you're gonna, there's gonna be demand around my product. And yeah. to, I can wait two to three years for you to come back and write me a million dollar order, right? right? Which never happened because we never decided to sell in Macy's. But um, you know, I, I'm hyper aware that we had the luxury to say that. Yeah, it's more of the mindset. Yeah, right. That I'm just trying to keep reminding people of that. Sometimes in these negotiations with these corporations, or if you're going out for a job and you feel like they're kind of taking one over on you, it's just the mindset. Yeah, there's no shame in like taking the check or you know, kind of uh, compromising a little bit yeah. on like pay if if you feel like, hey, I really need to do this. It's okay. Like yeah. this is just a journey. It's a process as you build your career. Yeah. And what really stood out to me with what you just said is the toggling back and forth. So toggling back and forth between being like, a headliner and an emerging artist status or like the 25 font and the and the 12 font. It's so important because the journey isn't linear. So mm -hmm. it's not like you're going from being mm. like the 12 font on the bill to the 25 and then it, you just keep going up and up. And that's where things get a little bit tricky is I think that people, when they are no longer headlining, they feel this like, I'm not relevant anymore. I'm really whatever. What do I have to do? Instead of it being like, no, you just keep doing you. Because especially when you're in a creative space, like it takes a lot of time and processing of your work to be able to like make the important art that you need to make. So you need those breaks. And I love how you described it as like when you're headlining and you have to, you know, do all the talk shows and you have to sing the song, same song over and over and over again. And then you miss the days where like, you're just, for me, it's like being in the cabin and painting and writing and just figuring out what it is that I need to get out. And so the toggling back and forth is also a complete reframe because it equalizes every experience. And it just says, it's all relevant, it's all good, it's all perfect, it's all meant to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I I find that to feel really light and reassuring. I've found peace with that myself in the last, I mean, during the pandemic specifically. And it's also brought up a lot of questions that I've had to ask myself about how I'm engaging with the work or what, um, what my actual intention in doing the work I'm doing is and and then the broader questions of like, and what do you believe about all of this? And who are you really? So I'd love to ask you, mm. what is a question that you are currently asking yourself as you are in the toggle mode? Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. 
At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning, we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, it would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. As you're hearing me talk about this, I'm hearing myself talk about it too, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is part, it's like therapy. I'm Welcome. Like, right? Welcome to the chair. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I love this chair. Um, so uh, where am I at right now in in, in A question life? you're asking yourself right A now. A question I'm asking myself Yeah, and right this now. can also be completely related to something other than what we yeah. were just talking about. Yeah. Um, a question I'm asking myself right now. There's... Uh, I had dinner with Aria from Complex. I don't know if you know Aria. She's, I think, the editorial creative director right now. Um, and she was like, all right, Bobby, you're a futurist. Like, what are you concerned yeah. about mm. with the future? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I don't know what a futurist is. I don't know if I necessarily <laughs> subscribe to that identity. Uh, and I do like to pontificate on what's happening and where this can yeah. go and you know especially for culture and tech of course um but i am actually most concerned with what's happening in the immediate right now and especially around youth culture and young people all the time yeah right and so i think questions i'm asking right now have a lot to do with for me the most pertinent is what is streetwear and where is streetwear in 2023 and uh what is what does it mean like how do you even define it um, we're in New York right now and, you know, I spent the last week here and there was a time not that long ago, in my opinion, seven years ago, six years ago, where every other person on the street was wearing something Supreme, right? Like this was the city in the heart of Supreme. And I was very hard pressed to find that brand. I saw more LA brands, uh, present in New York this week than I did New York, mm. which was also, it used to be unheard of. And um, and then I'm you know it, this is not just a knock against Supreme it's actually uh, a question against the across the entire streetwear culture you know because sneakers are also having a little bit of an identity crisis and there's also existential threats against just larger fashion of like what is this and w why are people still doing this and what is the purpose where do we sell it where do you even go to buy it these days yeah why are you buying brands who's running these brands. Um, so I think about that actually more than ever, you know, I'm, and, and it's not from like a hopeless place. It actually is from a really spirited and hopeful place. Like, I think that we may be looking at a renaissance of what streetwear can be. It's going to be redefined, I think, by new players and, and it'll be like forged as uh, and cast as like a completely new thing mm -hmm. in the next generation. And I'm really looking forward to that. I want to know what it is. Yeah. Um, but I think streetwear has always just been code for a youthful attitude and, you know, uh, questioning establishment and challenging norms. And yeah. there's an amazing brand out of LA right now called Fugazi. And they like made this like, streetwear shirt where they were making fun of like corporate streetwear and like knocked a bunch of brands and one of us was us on it and i was just like this is awesome that this still exists yeah right that young people are still getting angry and they're still feeling yeah. mm. like they're being marginalized and unheard and they want to say hey like this is my time to be heard now yeah. and like i want the world to see what i have to say yeah um that never dies you know and so I think I'm so captivated by young people because I was I'm stuck there too, 
right? And I think that time, as vulnerable as it, I don't necessarily ever want to go back to being yeah. that young again. But there is something really beautiful and dynamic about watching people in that window of time in their lives. And they're, they have just like a completely fresh perspective and are inspired and they feel invincible. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all really learn from that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it helps me every day to wake up and remember why it is that we do what we do, you know? And I don't feel like I age because uh, I'm surrounded by and listening constantly to what young people are doing, yeah. right? And they are just constantly keeping the compass straight and keeping me on the path. That's beautiful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I like received all of that as a person who I feel like is in the thick of it and just needed that reminder. And um, hmm. I had dinner the other night that you you guys couldn't make. Oh, and they, <laughs> you were there in spirit. In spirit. <laughs> and um, a lot of my friends now are around my age, a little bit younger, right? I'm, I just turned 43, which is wild to say. It used to be my school bus number. Uh oh, so that's a, it's lucky a great number. number. <laughs> There's also Ken Block's number. Um, uh, but the, there was like a lot of people in their 30s, but there were also some people in the 20s yeah. that were at the table. Everyone was really drawn to them, right? And if you sat on the edge of the table where there were more people around my age and listened to what we were talking about, it's it sounded a lot like how the beginning of this conversation was. So mm -hmm. what's on your heart? And I'm like, I'm just really worried. Uh, I'm a little anxious. I'm concerned. Right, about the future, about my family, like what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen. Cause I know so much now. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing doesn't mean that you're any more empowered. In fact, I think it can actually weaken mm -hmm. and harm, right? And I think that's, mm. we can point to the internet to see why a lot of people are struggling with so much anxieties because there's so much information. So you think you know. Yeah. Oh, because I have all this knowledge and history, I know yeah. what's gonna happen tomorrow. Nobody knows what's gonna Nobody happen tomorrow. Knows. But the 20 year olds at the table, yeah. the way that they were looking at their lives, their careers in the world, yeah. they're perfectly aware of what's going on, but they were like, we can change it and we can impact culture mm -hmm. and we can actually, like no one's heard me speak yet, Yeah. right? And yeah. so if once you hear what I have to say, yeah. I'm gonna move the needle, Yeah. right? And it's not, they weren't being foolish or they weren't being naive, mm -hmm. it was true. Right. And so I'm listening to them going, I still can do that too. We all still can do that. Mm -hmm. It's just at some point along the way, mm -hmm. we were like, oh, everyone's heard what I have to say, or I've done everything I can do and I only got this far. It's like, no, you're the But you're evolving done. every exactly. single day. You're a different person every single day. Yes. And it's something I, I've been thinking about a lot since our rep investigation is, you know, I think people, especially, in their 20s or even younger feel a lot of pressure to like change the world mm. that we're leaving behind and that we're going to be able if, to survive in ourselves. And this uh, takeaway that I had, this finding that I had in the investigation is, and I know we've like, there's a cliche quote of, uh, if you wanna change the world, you have to start with yourself. Mm. But I never actually like fully understood what that meant until more recently, when I realized that the way that I change the world when I change myself is that by finally knowing myself and engaging with my own story and knowing my history and knowing who I am and where I come from and understand like why I see the world the mm. way that I see it, mm. then my entire worldview changes because I begin mm. to see you as an individual story and that person as an individual story and that person. And then you're more uh, comforted in the fact that you don't know yeah. and that everything is a truth in front of you and like you can just continue to pursue it. But when our own worldview expands in that way, then the world literally changes because mm -hmm. our world mm -hmm. literally changes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we are all so interconnected. And so I really have been finding like the more you ask yourself the really big questions of who am I today in mm -hmm. this very moment, the more that the world around you really fundamentally begins to change. I mean, mine has been is like, I, I've been saying the last couple of days, I feel like I'm in a metamorphosis right now. Like wow. I'm really like in the biggest change of my life. And and I hope that that continues forever and ever, but I'm, I'm, I feel grateful that I'm getting to know myself in a kind and compassionate and open way. Yeah. 
And it feels positive, this metamorphosis, or is it, feels, it today, a it does. scary? Today okay. it feels positive. Yeah, yeah. Like five days ago, I was scary, screaming Bonk. and crying okay. and freaking yeah. out. Yeah, like it's every single day is new. Yeah. Every single day is, what is it? Who, um, this podcast interview that I listened to on, on being with Krista Tibbet, I think, no, 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 just kidding. This was in my yoga practice a couple of days ago. The instructor literally said that her teacher told her, um, it's a new day and it's never been used before. What are you going to do it? Would do with it. Like wow. it's a new day and it's never been used before. And it's just like, oh yeah, every day, like you get to figure it out. Yeah. And in the words of my 12 year old brother, who a few days ago told me he figured out the meaning of life. He said, the, f- the meaning of life is exactly what you make of it. Because all you do every day is make decisions. And so therefore, it's what you make of it. Wow. And I was like, you're right. Yeah. So we get to figure that out. Yeah. I love that. So Bobby, the way we close out these conversations, very simple, fill in the blank. If you really knew me, you would know. And you can share one, two, or three things. Oh, okay. If you really knew me, you would know. I've never posted my family on my uh, social media, on yeah. my public social media. Yeah. Um, so, uh, people who've met my wife or my children, I think they get to really know the real me. Yeah. Um, it was, I did that very early on because from the age of 23, so much of my life was online. I needed to compartmentalize yeah. and keep things for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> I think I surprised a lot of people because of what I, what my life presents as and what I typically spend my hours doing, which is I just sit in a corner and I read a lot and I write poetry and sounds boring. Um, sounds like the life to me. It's, it is. It's a really <laughs> amazing life. And um, yeah, nothing makes me happier than getting to reunite with old friends and just sitting in a room and having a conversation. Like we could be anywhere in the world, you know, um, and it just feels like everything was meant for this. Yeah. You know? uh, I don't know. I think if you really want to get to know me, subscribe to my Substack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just write about this stuff all day I long. love your writing so much. Thanks. It's so true and clear and passionate and, like, urgent. Yeah. With a sense of, like, but we're all good. Thanks. Yeah. Once in a while, like one out of a hundred times when someone compliments me and says something very nice about my work, it is to address my writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, if they read my book or something I wrote on my sub sack and, um, or they grew up reading the blog and they're just like, that meant the most. Yeah. Um, that's when I feel really seen. Yeah. And totally. I think it's because it's, you know, as when you're a writer, it's unadulterated you. Yeah. Speaker also host. Um, and you can't outsource that work. Right. And as I've built the company over the years, I have a lot of people who help me. So yeah. when people com- compliment me on like, yo, I love these new shorts that you guys made. I'm like, I didn't actually design that pattern. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I sat at the top and I was may have directed something or said, hey, let's try something. Or it might have been inspired by things that we've built along the way and accumulated to this process. But there was like probably like 30 different people that were involved in this from design to production to sales and marketing. Yeah. And so I love to take ownership in that, but I'm like, this is a community project. This was all of us that made these shorts. So I'll take it on behalf of the team. Uh, But when someone says that they were really touched by something I wrote, I'm like, oh, you and I, like, our hearts, like, touched, you know? Yeah. Like, that's such an amazing feeling. Yeah. Well, then it's also because it's Bobby Kim and not Bobby Hundreds. Yeah. It's like, that's me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, And it's vulnerable and it's naked and it's, like, scarily honest me. So that feels good. I'm so happy to see you. So happy to see you, too. Thanks for uh, doing the podcast. Thanks for doing it in this tiny hotel room. Yeah. I, <laughs> you guys made it work. No, we made it work. And Very I feel like resourceful. the conversation is like happened all these years later and I'm happy it happened from this place. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Bobby. 
Hold on, don't put that down. I wanted to take a photo of you this whole time. Oh, okay. It's just like, the light was really good. I know, I don't like, what videos did you guys get? Cause they were definitely all backlit. Love you, guys. Podcast Noor is an at-your-service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Theme music is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude and thanks to our storyteller, Bobby Hundreds. Check out his latest book, NFTs Are a Scam, his memoir, This Is Not a T-Shirt, and his Substack. As always, at your service.